Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. On this season of Contrary to Ordinary, we explore the motivations, lives, and character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them. The people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry. Some of the most creative and curious people I've ever met have been inventors. They're the folks who manage to translate dreams into something tangible. It might take years and thousands of prototypes, but they stick at it with vision and purpose. Today's guest is Dr. Simon McDonald. He's been described as a serial inventor and entrepreneur who has brought a number of groundbreaking inventions into the field of dentistry. You might be familiar with the V-ring and the tri-clip, but his other notable inventions include the one-visit crown and the grip tab. Simon is also a talented practicing dentist. He's another one of my guests who has exceptional time management abilities. This is part one of my interview with Simon, a lifelong learner who is always curious about something. Right now, my big topic is um, endothelial glycocalyx, <laughs> which I was telling Graham about. But that's a biggie. That's a really important one. You know, uh -huh. If you look at disease, right. it, it makes sense to rank problems and deal with big ones first. And so if you do prioritize health issues, cardiovascular disease and circulatory problems uh -huh. is number one by far. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we need to understand those things. And there's this thing called the glycocalyx. That does appear to be the mechanism of the cause of cardiovascular disease. So did uh, six-year-old Simon want to be a dentist? No. No. No, I think he wanted to be a, a train driver at six. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I just love... A different type of engineer. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother had a house with, along the railway line. And... Uh -huh. um, you could hear the trains coming from some distance away. And I'd run down to the bottom of the garden, climb up the fence and lean over <laughs> and feel the wind rush past. Yeah, yeah. And, as the, the, and the, the ground vibrates. Yeah, it's really exciting being quite close to a train when it goes past. Oh, yeah. When you're only small. The reason I chose dentistry was my father had done a degree in electrical engineering, but he moved out of engineering and he moved into human resources. And he was what was called a personnel manager at that right. in those yep. days. And he worked for a number of different 
quite large corporations uh-huh. and struggled with all the internal politics of that goes on inside those companies. And he strongly recommended that I got a profession so that if I needed to, I could just work for myself. Right. So he's, he thought I should either become a lawyer, an accountant, doctor, and dentist. Right. And I took that, that advice on board and looked at those professions. I, I remember I spent a day with a lawyer. I'd never been so bored in my entire life. <laughs> so I counted that one out. And I'm so glad I didn't do that. And accountancy, that didn't seem like me. And uh, medicine was excluded because the stupid school I went to, I love science, and they prevented me from taking physics, chemistry, and biology. Can you believe it? It didn't fit the curriculum. Can you believe it? No, that's, that's, that's really hard to believe. It is hard to believe, isn't it? And I really love biology, but I thought, well, if I've got to give up one of them, right. probably I should stick to chemistry and physics. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I thought that excluded me, but actually it wasn't true. But anyway... Um, with physics and chemistry and maths, it, dentistry was fine for yeah. some reason. Yeah. But I also had a, um, a strong interest in art. But I was umming and ahhing about whether to go to art school or whether to dental school. But in the end, I thought I'll be practical. At least I can earn a living and right, do right. art on the side. Yeah. yeah. Art, artists make the most amount of money once they're dead. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. I couldn't really see me making a living out of that. So where did you go to dental school at then? In London. In King's London. College Hospital. So how'd you get from London to New Zealand? A woman. Always a woman. <laughs> yes, a woman, yeah, yeah. So so I met Jan, New Zealander, who came over to study osteopathy. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And I met her in London, mm-hmm. and we hooked up together, and then we had two children in London, mm-hmm. and she, st- she, she actually lives locally. And she she's a very strong-headed woman, uh-huh. and she basically said she was going back to New Zealand. I could come along if I wanted. Right. So I said, well, all right, why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's go see a new country. Yeah, so yeah. that was basically it. So we came out here for a trip when my oldest daughter was a baby. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I fell in love with the place. I'm sure many people have had the experience of looking back at their life and wondering, how did I fit all that in? In my conversation with Dr. Bobby Birdie, we talked about the idea of long-term and short-term thinking and how we can get caught up in the idea of achieving a lot in a short time. The problem with this is we don't stop to think about how our actions stack up over the longer term. In his book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman said that there are two cognitive methods, System 1 and System 2. System 1 operates automatically and quickly, relying on intuition. It is the fast, effortless, and often unconscious mode of thinking. System two, on the other hand, is slow, deliberate, and analytical. It engages in rational and conscious thought. Ultimately, we need both ways of thinking, but it's good to be reminded that it's beneficial for us to slow down sometimes. But back to Simon. During our conversation, we got onto the topic of his master's thesis, which ended up influencing dentistry in a way that he didn't anticipate. I was working in a children's clinic, predominantly, uh-huh. in, in a deprived area of East London, and I was seeing a lot of children that needed general anaesthetics for multiple extractions. Oh, yeah. And I had heard about silver diamine fluoride from the Japanese, and I got some. 
I got some sent over from Japan, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I started um, playing with this, applying it to some of these very curious teeth. And I wasn't convinced it worked. But I thought to myself, if it did work, if you could stop the decay, why wouldn't you just put a filling on the top? It just seemed totally illogical to me. So I set about doing a study to see whether that would work. So we had a half mouth design and on one half of the mouth, they got just silver fluoride on its own uh-huh. and it had stannous fluoride to make right, it stannous, um, yeah, yep. to make it um, precipitate. And on the other side of the mouth, if it was a suitable cavity, it would have um, silver fluoride and stannous fluoride and then a bonding agent and clearfill, which was one of the early composites out of Japan. Yeah. And so then I, uh, I recruited about 50 to 60 children into that study. These children were all destined for general anaesthetic. Right. And the average age was four. Wow. So I was dealing with little kiddies. There was also a contr- another control, which was stannous fluoride only. Uh-huh. Now the children got nothing. Only the smaller cavities got uh, topical only. The bigger ones got restorations. Uh-huh. What it showed was that if you put stannous, the silver fluoride and stannous fluoride on and then the composite, and the composite stayed there, then the caries stopped. And I had numerous radiographs that showed that the pulp horn, the secondary dentin formed and the uh-huh. pulp receded yeah. and the distance between the cavity and the pulp increased uh-huh. significantly. So I basically proved that you can medically treat caries in 1983. I was the first person to ever do that. So you were using silver diamine fluoride yeah. in 1983? Yeah, I was. Wow. I'll tell you what happened, which was really shocking. I wrote up the paper. I had a really supportive professor. I was working part-time in a department of dental public health in, in University College, and he was super supportive, and we sent it to the British Dental Journal, and they came back with a bunch of criticisms. The statistics of a half-mouth design were dubious. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> How could you get a better control? I mean, it was just unbelievable. And they came up with all sorts of objections. Uh, I spent months reanalyzing it to fit their right. statisticians' comments, and they accepted the paper, so they were ready to print, and then they decided not to publish. Some top guy in Somebody the dental association said that they didn't want heresy published in the British Dental Journal. Right. Because as you remember back then, if you put a, a filling over decay, you'd fail your exams, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what I was I doing? I was putting fillings over rampant decay that was left behind. I didn't do that, actually. I, I spoon excavated the worst out, right. and then I treated yeah. it chemically, and then I put a filling on. So that, that got blocked, and I was so annoyed because I had spent two or three years of my life on that one. Yeah. And at that point, I was moving to New Zealand, uh-huh. and... Um, I just ran out of energy for that particular project. And yeah. it, it did eventually get published. That same professor carried on. And about um, 10 years later, it got published. But in the meantime, another dentist who had read my thesis, um, Hinkel, I think his name was, he was working in Tanzania. And he basically copied the whole idea and published it uh-huh. and claimed the credit for it. And then it became... The ART, the atraumatic yeah, restorative yeah. technique that the WHO adopted 
Right. But I started that. Yeah. It was that thesis there. I personally don't get too bent out of shape. I just move on, really. So you're positive, you move on. You don't see it as a block in your pathway. You might see it as a, a minor annoyance, but you shift and you continue yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Would you say you're persistent? Very. Uh -huh. But to, up to a point, at some point, you do have to move on. In, yeah. that, in that particular case, what else could I do, really? Right. I could have carried on trying to get it published somewhere else. But, it, but my whole, moving to New Zealand was a big break with the past. Right. And also having two or three ch young children at that point yeah, made it yeah. difficult. Yeah. And I got into writing software and doing all sorts of other things at that point. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your brain never stops, does it? Yeah, that's right. Simon is someone who is never still and who is always dreaming of what might be next. As you can imagine, he really admires the other great entrepreneurs of our age. One individual that Simon brought up in our conversation was Steve Jobs. In 2000, Jobs described the Macintosh computer's new graphics as looking so good you'll want to lick them. So he was very, very product focused and customer focused, but in an interesting way. Same thing Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they'd want, they'd say a faster horse. Yeah. They, they wouldn't say, you know, because that's that, that was a really uh, perceptive observation that there's yeah. no point going to your group of dentists and say, what do you want? In fact, Graham, who, you know. We, Graham Millicent. Graham Millicent. Yeah. yeah. I asked Graham to ask a number of dentists in the courses he would do if they could come up with problems that needed solving. And I, I think he asked that quite a number of times, but I remember him saying about the only question, he only, somebody put their hand up and said, how'd you get better people in the front desk? But it was actually, we were asking a, a product problem. Right, right, exactly. But we didn't a get anything. Government. And I've asked a similar sort of thing and it just doesn't happen. With the V-ring. Was that your first invention? Your first successful one. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> With the V-ring, there, there were a lot of people who, as soon as they saw it, they smacked themselves on the forehead with a hand and said, how could I not have invented that myself? Right, yeah. Because they had all struggled with, where do you put the tines, in front of the wedge or behind the wedge? That was a beauty. That was yeah. a fantastic. That didn't happen overnight. 180 prototypes. It was just ridiculous how long it took me. So what was that journey like? When I finished dental school in the UK, the options were to go into general practice or academia, or there were some salary jobs. Uh -huh. But the NHS, the National Health System, at that time was appalling. And it, it promoted very poor quality dentistry, uh -huh. um, a treadmill replacement of fillings. I just thought it was unethical. So I couldn't go into general practice there. So I ended up both in a, a salary job treating children and an academic job. But... Um, when I came to New Zealand, I, I did work in a school for dental therapists. I ended up managing health services in New Zealand. I was looking after a large area of uh, dental therapy, school dental service, and other services as well, actually, at one stage. But there, then I got made redundant from that, and I went back into practice. And I had a plan of uh, five years. I thought I could survive five years in general practice, but I don't know whether I could last longer than that. Because I, I know some people seem to have got the knack of enjoying it but i found it quite challenging 
Probably if I did it again, I would do it slightly differently. But I put too much time pressure on myself and I should have probably done a lot more orthodontics. I was doing too much operative stuff. You're doing brain surgery 70% of the day. It's, it's, it's hard going. It's a burnout problem, yeah. So I saw burnout as an issue. And so I said to my wife, who was a teacher, she left teaching and looked after the front desk. I said, I've got a five-year plan to um, come up with some other form of income because I can only do this for five years. I didn't want to go beyond that. And so every product that I used that didn't work very well, I thought, how could we make this better? Hi, contrary to ordinary listeners. We're going to take a short break from this conversation for our segment, Questions with Dr. Kim. Don't go anywhere. In this segment, I'll answer a listener's question about their dental health. If you have a dental question that you want answered, then send it to podcast at carryfree.com, spelled C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com, and add questions with Dr. Kim in the subject line. If your question gets read out on the show, then we'll send you a small gift to say thanks for checking in. This week's question reads, Dear Dr. Kim, I wanted to start by saying that I'm really enjoying the show. I recently found a toothpaste that I really like, but it's not ADA approved. Is it safe to use? Thanks so much for asking this interesting question. The American Dental Association, the ADA Seal of Acceptance, is a respected certification that indicates a dental product has undergone testing and meets certain safety and efficacy standards. However, the absence of the ADA seal does not necessarily mean that a dental product is unsafe or ineffective. Healthcare products in the United States are carefully regulated by the FDA, and more important is the FDA marketing clearance which ensures the product conforms to accepted safety requirements. There are many dental products on the market that may not have pursued ADA certification for various reasons, such as small manufacturers or specialized products that may not fit into the ADA's criteria. To determine if a dental product is safe and effective, consult with your dental professional, read product reviews, and evaluate the ingredients and the claims made. Thanks so much again for this question. And if you, dear listener, would like more information on all things dental, then head to carryfree.com, that's C-I-R-I-F-R-E-E.com, where we've got more resources on dental health and our line of carry-free products that can help you keep a healthy smile. But right now, let's get back to the conversation. So I come across the Garrison ring and thought that was quite good. The Paladin. And the Paladin, yeah, yeah. yeah, the Paladin yeah. ring and all this. But you know, I remember them jumping off across the room and hitting the wall, things like that. And um, I remember coming up with this mad idea that wouldn't it be great? There's a good question of mine is, wouldn't it be great if? Right. That's a good inventor's question. Because then you can let your mind flow and, uh -huh. and go wherever it wants. It gets and, that creative kind yeah, of thing going. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if? Yeah. And um, I said, wouldn't it be great if you could put the matrix bands, the wedge, and the retainer ring on at the same time. I set about doing that. Uh -huh. I made some rings uh -huh. with uh, lugs on the side, a bit like the current rings, actually. And I got the springs from the local mower repair guy, 
because those weed whackers, what do you call weed eaters? Weed eaters you know? Yeah, yeah, weed eaters, yeah. Weed eaters, um, you know when you whack it down on the ground and it lets a bit more rope out, yep. there's a spring in there uh-huh. that's about the right size. It's about an inch diameter. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was, I was always going down to get some more springs. I don't know, the guy never knew what I was doing with them, but I was always going to, he got any more of those springs. <laughs> We're running out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd cut them. And, and heat them red hot and bend them down to give it like a, right. a tine and yeah. then put a little plastic lug on the end. Another thing about inventing is um, you can flip something. You can invert something. So a wedge is pushed. Right. So I came up with a pull wedge. And it was a, a soft rubbery thing with a triangular cross section in it, like a very skinny long pyramid. with a, a tail that you pulled into the proximal space. And uh, so I came up with this thing that they called the triclip. And that's actually how I met Graham. Because I took it to the first New Zealand Dental Association, a real last-minute thing, just a table at the back. And um, somebody brought Graham over and I showed it to Graham. I was going to explain. He said, no, don't, don't say anything. Let me look at this. And he picked it up and he turned it around and he looked at the model and <laughs> he thought it was pretty amazing. <laughs> so we became good friends after that. <laughs> yeah. And... and uh, that product sort of took off quite well, and we went over to New York to the Greater New York Dental Meeting and uh, spent a lot of money to get there. Oh, yeah. And we were right at the back of the hall behind a huge concrete pillar, and we sold about $100 worth. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe two. Maybe $200 worth. <laughs> and it cost $40,000 to get there. Oh, yeah. So that was a total disaster. But yeah. what did happen was I met a wonderful guy called Jim Hirsch who owns Isolite. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. came over and he said, that's an interesting product and super great guy. Yeah, great and guy. he recommended that I was – because I, I was selling six in a box for $29 or something. Right. He says it's too cheap. You're never making money out of that. You've got to increase the price. So I said, that makes good sense. So we, I increased the size of the box and we sold, I don't know, we increased the price to 150 or something. And then it started to sell. That was great advice. He saved the company, actually, because I uh-huh. would have gone under if he hadn't come along and said that. Uh-huh. So I came back from New York, and sales were mediocre. Uh-huh. And I'd done my spreadsheets, you know, and it said if certain percentage of people rebuy, this is what the revenue, and you can pre- you know, you predict right. your cash flow forward, yep. and it all looked quite good. And I was based on 50% repurchased, 5% of repurchasing. Uh-huh. I thought, oh, oh, my goodness, this is a disaster because the zeros started disappearing. The product just wasn't selling, and I knew why. You know, I got feedback. It was too difficult to use. It was too difficult to put all three things in at the same time. Right. It was a stupid idea to try and do all three things at once. And I, I realized what a blunder. Dentists don't want to put all three things in at once. Why not just make it better and get rid of the problem with the wedge, which I had already fixed? And at three o'clock in the morning, when I was sweating at night, thinking I've wasted 250, I mean, this is nearly 20 years ago. And I thought I'd waste everybody's money. And I woke up in a sweat thinking, oh, this is disastrous. And then this image of the V-ring came to my mind. And I thought, you stupid idiot. We need a good wedge, a good matrix, which we'd already been making. Yeah. And a ring that straddles the wedges. Yeah. That's all I needed. Yeah. So I kind of jumped out of bed and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I drew this thing up 
And the next day I went down to the people who were doing the um, manufacturing uh-huh. were tool makers who were making roofing tiles, like <laughs> Six, roofing tiles and yeah. dental matrix rings. They don't really go together. <laughs> so they were using like 100-ton presses to make enormous roofing tiles that were punched out that looked right. like um, terracotta tiles and stuff, yeah, yeah. like that, you know, a yard long, yard yeah. wide. Yeah, yeah. Each press you know, was like absolutely massive. But nevertheless, they still knew the principles. And um, another funny thing that happened, I had, where did the nickel titanium come from? When this new product arrived in my head, I was sh- sure we should make it out of nickel titanium, uh-huh. as we all know what that is. Super elastic. It made great sense to make that ring out of that. And you can't just go and buy nickel titanium. You have to have it placed in order. They m- melt the metal uh-huh. into a, a big ingot, and then they roll it out with very, very expensive machinery because you have to do it okay. in an yeah. oxygen-free environment. I found someone who could make it. The only way I could get it was a $40,000 order for, I think, two huge sheets of the stuff. And this was all based upon the idea that we could forge the nickel titanium into the right shape Uh as a one piece. Right. And I thought to myself, who do I know who could help that process? My front desk woman, husband, was a panel beater. And I thought to myself, well, he knows about metal bending. Go and talk to him. So, yeah, he was willing to take on the project and his sidekick worked with me and we tried various different tools to try and form a V-ring out of uh-huh. a cu- flat cut-out piece of... And the first one we made uh, worked perfectly. It was just a fluke. We couldn't repeat it. We just couldn't repeat it. In fact, I gave it to Graham, I think, and he called it the old dunger. It looked horrible, but it worked brilliantly. It was superb. Uh-huh. All the other ones came out just looked terrible. They just all twisted and warped and irregular and it was just terrible so i had this um big sheet of nickel titanium i think what on earth am i going to do i can't make it there's a lot right. and um then i went to see these tool makers again uh-huh. and you know the expression if you've got a hammer everything's a nail yeah well those guys if you've got a problem you use a press tool to fix it right and i showed them my problem and they said well why don't you just make a stainless steel bit with the tines and put the nickel titanium around the outside. Oh, great idea. Brilliant. Right. And quite quickly, they managed to make a machine that punched out the stainless steel blank and form it to the right shape. And then I found someone to laser cut out the rings. When I showed it to people, it just, they were just dying to get it. Took off wildfire and the company just grew crazily fast. Originally, I had a spare room in my dental surgery where all the stock was for the triclip. But as soon as the V-ring came along, I rented a place across the road, repainted, made it look nice, took on one staff, two staff, three staff, four staff, five staff, and in three months, we had to move out and get the lick of the lease back and went to a much bigger place. And it just grew and grew and grew from there. It was a very exciting run. Often people don't follow through with their inventions because they think their idea is too obvious. Something might seem obvious, but that doesn't mean that it's out there yet. 
Bringing an idea to life is about having the vision and tenacity to push through what can be a long and drawn out process. I don't know many people who would be willing or able to go through as many prototypes as Simon did on his various journeys of invention. Another great thinker that has influenced Simon's direction of travel is Dr. Edward de Bono. And he was the guy who came up with the lateral thinking term. And he wrote quite a few books. Uh-huh. Um, and he was very influential on my thinking. And um, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it was called Beyond Poe. And Poe is a shortening of the word let's suppose. Ah. So let's suppose is a, a really open question. Right. It allows you to go anywhere as soon yeah. as you say let's suppose. If anything was possible. Let's suppose, yeah. Yeah. And this book lists all the ways that you can invent something, basically. It's a great book. Uh-huh. I mean, it's still around, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, so one of the things you can do is um, invert something. That's where the pull wedge comes from. Right. So if you could just try it. What, what happens if you invert it? Turn it upside down, do the opposite yeah. of what it normally does. And the other big part of let's suppose is an inventive step goes through an impossible intermediary stage. What most people do is they throw it out at that stage. They just dismiss it. But the inventor holds that impossible intermediary stage and say, well, if that was possible, what problems does it present and how can we fix those? And quite often you can then fix those seemingly impossibles. Right. And that's how you come up with a product that nobody's ever thought of because you've gone through this up, this over this hill of apparent impossibility. Right. And then there's something on the other side. I think, too, extraordinary people look at things that seemingly are impossible. Yeah. And yet then they sort out how to make it possible mm. and they get to an intermediary yeah. step and they keep going. Yeah. Right. Where a lot of people would just quit yeah. and turn back. One of the questions I pose to a lot of people is that ability being extraordinary, being visionary, having those kind of traits, do you think that's something that's innate that you were born with? Or? No, I think you can learn it. You've got to have curiosity. All children have got curiosity. It gets driven out of them. That's the problem. Or, or gets taught out of them. Yeah, taught out of them, yeah. Or is extraordinary a place that you choose to go to? Or is it a kind of a combination of all three? I'm not sure, really. I can't really explain why. I find it odd that other people aren't as curious as I am. They probably find I'm weird or a bit boring because yeah. I'm always saying, how does that work? Why is that happening? What's going on here? But they don't seem to think that way. I don't know. I think they've, lo- they've lost it. Somewhere along the line, it fell off the bus. Yeah, or maybe they just never had it. No, I don't think right? that's true because you think children... Children tend to be are, curious. They do. They pick things up and look at it, turn around and that's analyze right. it. And yeah, of course, everything is new to a child. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so they stay curious. Yeah. So one of the, I think then one of the things for you is to stay curious. Yeah. Huge. And maybe nurture their curiosity throughout their entire life. And you're still curious. Henry Ford once said, anyone who stops learning is old. Whether at 20 or 80, anyone who keeps learning stays young. I see this useful curiosity in so many of my guests. They're all so different, but share this as a common trait that invites new challenges into their lives. Simon mentioned his brush with programming earlier, but he's also branched out into other areas of invention.
I've invented a sewing machine. Basically, there's a bobbin and then there's a needle. That's the basis of a sewing machine. Yeah, yeah. And there's a thing that goes around the bobbin that's mechanically connected to the timing of the needle. And the problem is that you can't get a lot of fabric underneath the arm of a sewing machine. Yeah. So on for a sail, for example, or a huge piece of canvas, yeah, yeah. you've got a problem. So I said to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could separate the needle mechanism from the bobbin mechanism, have them completely independent? Yeah. And I have actually invented a machine that does that. I, I spent a lot of time venting it. I should have spent a bit more time thinking about the commercial side of it. Right. And I'm not 100% sure there's a home for it. Uh-huh. But I think there could be. But I've actually, I actually made a machine. Uh, uh, actually made one. I actually made one that sews, right. and you can lift the top off uh-huh. completely, right, and put it back again, and it sews again. So it means that you don't have any restriction on the, the size, size of, of the cloth. fabric. You yeah. could even have it CNC programmed to crawl along the floor, like if you were in a cell loft. Yeah, you could make it walk along, following a line with the bobbin underneath uh-huh. and the sewing needle on the top, yeah. and it would sew as it goes. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't actually uh, <laughs> done anything about that one. So uh, looking at your career, Simon, what would you consider your biggest success? Well, definitely the Trident business. Uh-huh. It was a the fantastic. Trident, the yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, the, that was yeah. superb. That was a dream come true. Maybe a lot of people do suffer from this thought, but... Um, I had this voice in me that used to say things don't work out. And so you were hearing it was self-criticism, your own Yeah, echo. doubt. I think it's the kind of thing, don't get too excited, prepare for failure. You know, I, you bring up a really interesting topic, the whole concept between success and failure, mm. how you define success, and the balance of, like, where do you, how do you navigate through that? Because mm. some people have a fear of success, Mm. Right, I mean, some people literally block themselves from being successful because they, they maybe it's a reward they don't feel worthy or whatever. And yeah, then, and then you have people that operate from a point of fear of failure. Yeah. so it's like burn the bridge in the harbor because you know we're going to make this happen, hell or high yeah. water. I'm, I don't care what it takes. I'm not going to fail. So I try and figure out how do those feel in your own. Well, life, I think it had been from experience because uh-huh. a lot of things didn't work out. Maybe it's a tendency to focus on the negative take for granted the things that did work out. But I did have this little horrible voice in me that says, don't get too, uh, don't get too, prepare yourself for a disappointment, basically. Right. How did you get around that? Well, I just kept trying. And the trade thing, it did work out. It just, it was a dream come true. By that stage in my life, I was like 50. Uh So I had a lot more life skills by then. Right to navigate, understand a lot more about how businesses work. Well, I was pretty naive when we started the Trident business, but I was lucky to find some really good people to work with who had the skills I didn't have. And I I knew I needed some financial help and also management help. I mean, I I, I had those basic skills, but not my forte. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and all my particular interests either. I'm much more interested in product development than... (laughs) Than spreadsheets. Than spreadsheets, Yeah. yeah, yeah. You still have that voice? Not much, your no. Not much I, think it, I think I killed that one off. <laughs> Glad now, the I got... saying, now the voice is saying, you know, hey, watch this, right? Yeah, hang on, everybody, watch yeah, this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Trying to do it again. Yeah, we've had our struggles that last. Try, tried lots of products that don't work. Lots of things that 
everybody tries, you know, probably one in 10 is going to work if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. But as they say, the, the more you try, the more mistakes you make, right. the more chance you've got. And as I said to my wife the other night, the only people that don't make mistakes are dead. It always seems like the harder you work, the luckier you get. You know, a lot of yeah. people say, oh, gosh, he's so lucky. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. or you, you get to that overnight success and and they didn't see the 15 years and, 100, no. and 180 prototypes and no. sleepless nights and things that it yeah. took to get there. And, yeah. and I think the courage, like, I think that's another really important trait, mm. like having the courage to, like, you had this vision, you knew this would work. Mm. And in spite of the fact that it, you continue to run into op, obstacles, yeah. right? Yeah. But you, you knew it could work. Well, I had evidence. I think that's important. Yeah. If I didn't have the evidence, I don't think I would have been so, but I knew, I'd seen it myself. I worked hard on something that also I knew worked uh -huh. that nobody else wanted to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, there's some great great ideas and yeah. some great products that it's just like, but nobody else sees the purpose or no, need for it. No, but they yeah. don't really see the problem. Or you can get carried away with something thinking that everybody needs. One, one big problem I think for I have and other inventors have is that market research before you've developed something only works for some things. If you say to a dentist, if there was a product that did this, this, and this, and this, would you buy it? Uh, a sensible dentist is going to say, I don't know until I've tried it. Right. Give me one and I'll tell you. Yeah. That's a sensible response. You can't do market research to find out. The problem is you have to spend a lot of money yeah. to get a prototype before you can even do the market research. And by that time, you might as well launch the product anyway. Thanks for listening to part one of my interview with Dr. Simon McDonald. In part two, Simon and I will be diving further into his inventive spirit and we'll be discussing his PhD that studied the computer modeling patterns of tooth decay. And we'll explore what Simon does for fun. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs>